I want to jump into our teaching today, or back into it. Several months ago, we began a teaching in the book of Ephesians, sort of a subset of teachings, called uh, the armor of God. And it's really interesting. There's some very deep and profound spiritual truths in this passage, all of which revolve around helping us to thrive and flourish in our world for Jesus. And so, so far we've talked about, uh, I will not rehash each piece of armor for time's sake. This is all online if you've missed any of this stuff. But the general idea behind each piece of armor that God gives us is that it helps us to stand firm against the various trials and difficulties we face in life by helping us to become more like Christ. Especially today, we're going to read a verse about what the Bible does for us, since we're talking about the sword of the Spirit. And one of the things that Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, we'll get to that here in a moment, is that the, the Bible trains us in righteousness. And one of the very first pieces of armor we spoke about was the breastplate of righteousness, how it's in Jesus' righteousness alone that we are able to um, satisfy God's desires, okay? So every piece of armor, I hope you'll see as we begin to look at this in the context of other teachings, it really matters. If you were to hear me say this morning that God uses the Scripture to train us in righteousness, uh, without Jesus, we tend to embrace one of two forms of righteousness, either self-righteousness, meaning we think Jesus needs us, or this sort of woe is me type of righteousness, like a self, self-deprecating type of philosophy where we, we really believe that we just are not at a place in life where somebody like Jesus could love us. To understand righteousness according to the armor really makes a big difference in how you understand what the role of the Bible is in your life. And obviously I could spend hours recapping and connecting those prior pieces of armor, but we won't do that this morning. I just want to encourage you to know that a lot of these teachings will feed each other, especially with what we're going to look at today. And so last week, we really drove this truth home when it came to understanding the sword of the Spirit. We said that everything we have studied thus far, and the the truth of the Bible in and of itself, is, is teaching us, is sort of shaping our lives so that we can become more like Jesus. And we arrive at this place where we talk about the sword of the Spirit, which Paul explicitly defines as the Word of God. It's a synonym for what we call the Bible today. There's several sort of statements or words we use to describe the Bible. The Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God. It's a perfect example, the sword of the Spirit here. These are sort of different ways we describe the Bible, which in many ways give us some clarity into what it does in our lives. But the bottom line is that is what he's talking about here. And I really just want to revisit the sort of foundation that I laid last week for how we should understand what, if any, significance the Bible should have in our life. And we talked about a very very common value in our world, one that's also very important in the Christian faith, this idea of cause and effect. Let me explain what I mean by that. Everything in the Christian faith, you can really think of it this way, there is cause and effect. What we say we know about Jesus, what we understand about him, what we say we believe about Jesus, the causes of our faith, should deeply shape the effects of our life. Okay? So here's some common examples of this. If we are truly a people that believe that Jesus loves us, there's a cause in that. He first loved us. That's what the Bible teaches us. Then that should absolutely shape how we love others. There should be some meaningful effect of that in our lives over time. Or if you believe Jesus who spent his life in in absolute generosity, pouring himself out for the sake of others. The very nature of the communion table is an example that even when it came to his own life, he was willing to give it up for the benefit of others. What we see in Jesus is absolute generosity, uh, incredibly rich and meaningful self-sacrifice. That cause of this in our lives, believing and trusting in the works of Jesus, this should at some point begin to reshape our lives into people who who are generous. His generosity, the cause, should affect our lives. 
serving and sacrificing. The same can be said for that. Our heart should be compelled to have some type of an effect in, that, in life. In other words, what Jesus has done for us, we should over time and with a lot of grace desire to do for others. And so the reason I bring this up with the sword of the Spirit is, is because it's perhaps the most controversial of all the pieces of armor. A lot of people like the idea that, that Jesus gives us truth and they like the idea that he becomes our righteousness and he guides our lives. But when you begin to talk about the Bible, this is a harder thing to wrap our heads around because it is a contested book in our world. And I mentioned last week, even amongst the Christian faith, there are radical, radically different views on the role, if, if it plays one at all, on what the Bible means in our lives. For some people, it is central to the faith. It's sort of the guiding authority for us. That's what we believe. For others, it is a, uh, like an editorial piece, meaning they think it gives good commentary on life. But at the end of the day, there are many teachings in it that people just will not prescribe to. And what happens in that world is you become the authority over the Bible. And so it's very important that we know the cause and effect understanding for why we think the Bible should be at the center of our faith. And it simply goes back to Jesus. If you and I believe that Jesus valued the Bible... The scriptures read from them, taught them aloud, submitted his life to them. All things he has done, just about everything he's saying in the New Testament, is referencing teachings from the Old Testament. That's the foundation upon which the Second Testament is written. If we believe that Jesus placed a value on this and relied upon it, even gave authority statements saying, these words I give you, which were eventually written down in the Bible, they're the, the authority behind them is his Father in heaven. He really placed a great emphasis on the Bible. Then we should somewhat naturally be the kind of people, the effect anyways, that look to the Bible and trust in the Bible in the same way Jesus did. That is the effect Paul is calling us to here. The cause is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It mattered. God gave it to us. It was lived out by Jesus. Two covenant people, Israel and the church, have been commanded to submit their lives to it and follow it. And right here, Paul says, this is one of the pieces of armor we're given. It's one of the critical tools God has offered us so that we can follow him, serve him well, and live the most meaningful lives we can in this life and in the next. And so today's teaching, I really hope, will show us a different layer we'll add on to what we talked about last week. But it will show us that if you really want to know Jesus, if you really want to understand your ultimate purpose and meaning in life, you have to read the Bible. It's incredibly challenging, and I would absolutely say problematic, to follow Jesus without the truths of his scripture. Even the very nature of what I'm saying now, the understanding we have about communion, all of these are things that we can directly go back to the Bible and find. And that's why we feel confident bringing them up or raising them. Why do we celebrate communion each month? Well, because Jesus literally told us to do that in the New Testament. So, you know, even in our church, we don't sort of just make up a bunch of things and do what we think is going to be cool or awesome. I mean, we're certainly not against that, but we will be against that if it really begins to contradict the idea that we're talking about today. We've been given this sword that the Holy Spirit applies in our lives to be able to know the real Jesus. And it is in the scripture that God addresses these matters and many others. And so I promised that over these weeks, we would start answering several questions about the Bible. And we're going to ask the same question today that we did uh, last week. And that is because I didn't want to keep you here for two hours. I wanted to keep you here for right around 35 minutes. And so we broke up, or I broke up, what I wanted to talk about last week into two teachings. And the question we asked last week is, what is the Bible? And it's going to be the same main point. The main truth I want to share with you will not be any different than what we discussed last week, but what we use to explain it will be. And this leads me to the only idea I want to mention to you this morning. 
When we ask the question, what is the Bible, there are many ways we can define this. I want us to have a, a very practical definition of what the Bible is. And the Bible is what God has given us so that we can truly know, love, and follow him. You know, it is a, there's technical ways to describe the Bible. They are the scriptures. They have been given to people by God and written down and preserved over generations and millennia. All of that is true. But ultimately, I said last week that the Bible is a story. It is a redemptive narrative. It is God's revelation of himself to the world. God's pursuit of a people who, for a great majority of their time, spend their time being very far from God, running from God. From the very inception of the scripture, the very good creation, that's how God describes us and everything in it, had some problems. And those problems eventually led to the fall of man, where we walked away from God. And so we can describe the Bible in many ways. But I think if you understand that the overarching theme of the Bible is God constantly offering himself to us, inviting us back into that once perfect relationship we had pre-fall and will have again once we're in glory with him in heaven, it changes the dynamic of the book. It's no longer a book of just simple rules or morals. All of these ideas, all of these truths are driving us towards becoming more like Jesus so that we can actually know God in more deep and meaningful ways. And so I want to share with you a verse from 2 Timothy this morning. It's probably the most famous verse in the New Testament that gives us some clarity on what the Bible is. In 2 Timothy, Paul teaches us something very important about the role the Bible is supposed to play in our lives. And here he gives us some very practical reasons. He moves immediately away from the technical talk of the Bible and tells us there are some very important reasons we need to wrestle with and live out the teachings of the Bible, which I always give this disclaimer when we speak of the Bible, are meant to be lived out in meaningful community. Simply put, you can, you can, let me put it this way, follow Jesus alone. You can attempt to do that, but you will never see the truth of the scripture applied in your life if you are doing it disconnected from not just relationships, but meaningful relationships, meaning other men and women whom you can rely on, and they can rely on you to process these things, to, to have a voice for, uh, to, your voice to, uh, to offer to somebody when they struggle with these things, and you have somebody you can go to when you object to these things. Let me tell you, you cannot read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and not be rubbed in some raw ways at some points, because there are things, not all of the things, but some of the truths and teachings in the Bible that God will call us to will really rub against the grain of who we are. And that's part of that reshaping fashion. And so we have to live Scripture out in community, in meaningful relationships, where we are known by people and people know us. Otherwise, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it doesn't happen. And what we read there is Paul says all Scripture, another synonym for the Word of God, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for a slew of things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is not the only thing the Bible does, but these are some of the main things. It teaches us about who God is. God uh, oftentimes rebukes and corrects. Those words might sound somewhat hard, but these are the places where God offers himself to realign us in the areas where we are far from him, and it helps us to understand what it means to be righteous. I love the idea that it's just like in an ongoing tense, training in righteousness. It's like Jesus gives us all of his righteousness. We discussed this with the breastplate, but now we spend our lives pressing into it, learning what it means to live in ways that righteously reflect that piece of armor, that breastplate God has given us. And we learn here that all of this is done so that God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so when we speak about the Bible, the Bible is not just an academic book. 
It's not just a historical book. A lot of people treat it this way. The Bible's ultimate aim is to make us more like Jesus so that we can be equipped in very thorough ways for good works in the name of Jesus. Meaning there is both a deeply spiritual, physical, and emotional uh, praxis point that the Bible should have in our life. The cause and effect idea. We are understanding, growing, being trained in righteousness so that we can actually live in ways that honor Jesus and help the world see him. And in this verse, Paul uh, clearly lays out two, there are two reasons why God wants us to know Jesus and follow him by listening to his voice in the scripture. And that's what we'll talk about this morning. The first, he says, is that all scripture is, is the breath of God or God breathed. And this to me it is, in my opinion, probably the most significant statement about the Bible in the New Testament. By significant, I don't mean that it's any more important than other, other teachings about the Bible. But what I do mean is that the idea behind Scripture being God-breathed is pretty profound. And let me explain what I mean by that. The way Paul describes the Scripture, he, he evokes here, and Paul does this a lot. A lot of his language is, is Old Testament imagery. Another testament to the fact that this is a guy who we're talking about, who devoted his life to understanding, his life to understanding the Scripture. And so God breathes in, in Genesis chapter 2, where we read about the story of creation. There we find out that M- Moses tells us God formed man from the dust of the ground and is truly not alive until God breathes life into his nostrils. And this idea of divine breath is, is a statement that we read a lot about in the Bible. It was only after God's divine breath entered Adam that Adam experiences the fullness of life God desires from him. And there's a really beautiful parallel that Paul is making here, something that I think is both theologically accurate and and poetic. We're sort of seeing some of Paul's writing skill. In a very poetic way, he's saying, listen, in the same way, this this idea of of God's breath, which is synonymous with life, God breathes life into Adam. In the same way he did that, God breathed life into the Scripture. And so what is the point behind this and the way that God gave it to us? There truly is no genuine life in God without the breath of God. We can live sort of subordinate lives. We can live lives that are not fully reaching the kinds of capacity that God wants for us to have in Him. We can have life, that's for certain. But you will not have this type of life, God-breathed life, if you disconnect yourself from the breath of God. The truth is, when you look at Adam, he's dust without it. And frankly, the parallel here in the modern world is that those of us who try to follow Jesus without his word, this will create a very false, lifeless, dusty faith. And all you have to do is look at movements in America that in the name of Christianity practice things that are far and few between when it comes to biblical Christianity. They are religious in nature Maybe a Christian in form, Paul would say, forms of godliness, but they lack the heart or the substance of the authority of God's truth. And so the idea behind this is that we cannot fully have the kind of life God desires for us if we disconnect ourselves from the source of where that life is given to us and encouraged and corrected. And all of the beautiful truths we just read about in 2 Timothy, these are ways that God breathes life into us, continues to. And the reason being, while we can live on this earth, please hear me say this, we can live on this earth apart from a relationship with God as revealed in his word. And a lot of people do find meaning and purpose in this. I, uh, I told you last week that I, I listened to a lot of uh, sort of debates between really well-known and intelligent uh, Christians and folks who have very adversarial views towards Christianity. And this past week, I 
watched the debate between a, a perhaps one of the most famous living atheists today, a gentleman named Sam Harris, and uh, an incredibly famous apologetic uh, Christian named William, uh, William Lane Craig. And these two guys were arguing about how we can actually have an objective morality. How can we have, how can we actually have truth that really is, is truth? And as you might expect, the, uh, the Christian argues very strongly from the angle that we can know objectively what is right and wrong because God has given us truth in the scripture about what is right and wrong. In other words, there is somebody outside of the paradigm that has determined what is right and wrong, and therefore we can trust in an unassailable way what that is. And on the other side of the spectrum, it's interesting now, the language is changing in the modern world. Um, people are beginning to say that a byproduct of uh, biological evolution is, is this idea of right and wrong. In other words, they're saying we need this to survive, so therefore it's more like chemical reality than it is sort of a, a divine presence in this world. And what's interesting is, is the conversation kept going back to how you can truly have meaning. How can you fully have worth in life if there isn't something outside of us that prescribes value to us? And so the point was being made both in different ways. One was saying the way you have this ultimate life and meaning is by knowing there's a God that says you are truly amazing. You've been created in my image and you are worthy no matter what the world says about you. And the other side of the spectrum just believed because we were here, we sort of mattered. Two very different ways of looking at life and why we matter. But at the end of the day, I want you to hear, I'm not saying you can be as far from God as possible and live a great life on earth. But at the end of the day, that life is still going to be shorter, a lot less full and robust than what it means to have the fullness of life God offers us in Jesus. And that's where I think this is difficult for people to, to wrap their heads and their hearts around because we probably know some really great people that care nothing for God but live great lives. They just seem to have it all put together. Maybe from the outside, we never truly know the the inner secrets of where people are. Some folks can put a good front out on this. But at the end of the day, they seem to have a quality or substance and meaning of life. And all I'm saying is, is that's wonderful, but it can be more wonderful when we begin to understand teachings like what we're talking about today. Because fulfillment in this life, at least according to the Christian truth, and the next is bound up in knowing and loving the Jesus of the Bible. And so anything less than that is a substitution. It is a lesser form of fullness. And so I want you to think about this. Think about the scriptures, all that they teach us, the hard edges and the soft edges. According to the scriptures, we know it is in Jesus we find our ultimate worth. It is in Jesus we find meaning and purpose in life. It is in Jesus we learn that we can experience a love like no other. Those of us who have lived in this world and have felt like we have not been loved or we've been in paradigms where we've been shown lesser forms of love, Jesus offers to fill in those gaps and to show us love in very significant ways. It's in Jesus that we can be called adopted sons and daughters of God so you can literally live on this earth and have nobody that cares anything about you. But you can serve a God who says, I don't care what anybody says about you. You're like my own. You are my own. You are fully grafted into the kingdom of God. You are loved even if the world says you are unlovable. It's in Jesus that we can experience grace upon grace through the trials of life. It's in Jesus that we can experience true healing from the deep emotional scars so many of us carry around. The scripture speaks to these things with objective authority. The Bible says, yeah, you might be wounded, you might be scarred in life, but those scars can be healed so that we can persevere and still flourish. It's in Jesus that we experience all of this. And the reason we know all of this, the reason I'm saying all of this in confident ways, is because Jesus told us all of this in his word. The sword of the spirit is where we learn these things. 
And so that's why Paul says the words of Scripture, looking at two places, Ephesians and in 2 Timothy, the words of Scripture are much more than just words. We cannot see them as just words. They are the very breath of God. And his breath, because it contains life, is constantly trying to whisper life into the ears of our heart. That's what the Bible is meant to do in our lives. And that's why I said last week, the Bible cannot be an optional tool for our faith. It, it is an optional to, tool for a great many people. In fact, this is, it's very challenging to say this. When you look at the statistical analysis and the perpetual growth of biblical illiteracy in the Western, particularly American church, the scales are teetering towards people not really valuing the Bible at all. Even people that are in church on a regular basis, this might be the only contact they have with the Bible. And then their inconsistency in the way they participate in corporate worship gatherings means some people might only touch the Bible once every four to six weeks. And if this truly is the life God offers us, the breath of God, what, that, that would be like you spiritually taking a wickedly deep breath right now and holding it until Christmas. Think about how that would work out. You'd be dead in the foyer, pretty much. That's what would happen. There's a spiritual parallel here. And we need to think about that. We're, the, the breath of God is perpetual. We're breathing without even knowing it right now. And God's breath is present to us in the very same way with the word. Even when it's not in our hands, we can, we can read scripture and know scripture and be in situations in life where we don't necessarily have the book in front of us, but the spirit speaks to us. He is encouraging us and challenging us and safeguarding our minds and hearts in places where we might be experiencing fiery darts of the devil. It's incredibly important that we inhale the breath of God on a regular basis. That's what Paul tells us. It is the, the God-breathed reality. It's God's life to us, the sword of the Spirit. The second thing Paul says is that the Bible is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. And I'm not going to spend time sort of defining each and every one of these uh, words. Some of these are self-explanatory, and we spent a lot of time discussing righteousness. And that is the thing I would say if you have questions about understanding the righteousness Jesus gives us so that we can avoid self-righteousness or believing that we are just not worthy of anybody's love. This is sort of where righteousness really matters. We wear the breastplate of righteousness that Jesus gives us so our hearts can be protected from the falsities that are often thrown our way about who says we matter or do not matter. Uh, what I want us to know here is that I want to look at a bigger principle here. If we really believe, right, that, that the Bible is God's breathed life into us, then it makes perfect sense that we would place a priority on this and we would recognize that if the ultimate aim of the Scripture is to help us become more like Jesus, then what that means is the Scripture is going to mold us, remold us. If the Bible really is God's voice speaking into our lives, then it really does need to be the true north for what we personally embrace in life and teach others about Jesus. We talked about the Great Commission last week, that one of the very last things Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended was that we were to teach with his authority, the people of the world to obey and follow his teachings. One of the very centerpieces of what it means to know Jesus is to understand what he has taught. And so here we read in 2 Timothy that the truths of the Bible enable us to clearly know who we are in Jesus and what he's called us to do. They shape our identity, they help us to understand who we are, and they help us to understand what we need to be doing in light of who Jesus is. And those are two very important balanced ideas. Who we are in Jesus cause should affect what we do for Jesus. Effect. If we, if we get these things out of sorts, we can, we can sort of be so enamored with what Jesus has done for us that the faith becomes somewhat self-centered. In other words, we live and exist and believe that what Jesus did, he did for me alone. 
That's an imbalance. That's cause without effect. Effect without cause simply means we think if we're not running 24-7 for God and perfectly nailing every one of his commandments, then, then God will stop loving us. And the effect issue is a problem. What we're balancing here, what we're trying to balance, is that who Jesus says we are shapes who we are and what we do. And in that sense, we are more likely uh, going to have true paradigms in our life when it comes to these truths as opposed to imbalanced ones. And so it is in the scripture that we learn how to balance these things and in application in life with other people. Through it, God gives us a wisdom and a discernment to know what is true and right in the world. We have this in the Bible, and then we have other people that we speak into and who speak into us. It's in the scripture that we learn about his grace when we miss the mark in doing what is true and right. I mean, think about that. The Bible teaches us what is true is right. And then the uh, true and right. And then the Bible also teaches us that God is a God of mercy and grace when we do the things that are not true and not right. When we read scripture, God personally guides and speaks our, into our lives. And when you think about it from this way, it's pretty amazing. And that is why the scriptures are important in the individual lives of Christians and churches. Those who devote their lives to the scriptures. And when I say devote, I mean we go to them with the idea of wanting to grow in our understanding of God, our understanding of grace. In, our, in humility and righteousness before God. We don't want to go to the scriptures like the Pharisees did. They knew them better than anybody and misunderstood God more deeply than anybody else. And so we see you can actually know the Bible really well and absolutely not know the one who breathed life into it. That's possible. That's not the type of sort of accumulation of, accumulation of biblical knowledge I'm talking about. We want the accumulation of biblical knowledge to shape humility and righteousness. And we want to be open enough to let the Holy Spirit take those truths and shape and reshape our hearts into the image of Jesus. That's the idea behind how we approach the Bible. And the truth is when we spend time in the Bible like this, the more likely we are to live as if God is somebody who matters in our lives, who is weighty in our lives. That's the language I like to use. Because when a person looks for God's truth and is willing to find it, God promises he will show it to them. If we believe the Bible is a story, a, na- a narrative story, a redemptive story, if we believe the, the Bible is much more than God just handing the world rules, although those are very important, because those rules help us to understand how we interact with him and each other. If we actually believe that he offers us all these things so that we can know him more deeply, we can love God and love our neighbors, be in more significant and meaningful relationships with people in our lives, whatever form that relationship is, what that means is God is not trying to hide himself from us. So when we go to the Bible wanting to know God, it is promised. Not because I'm promising it to you, but because God has already promised it to you and his actions should show us this. He will reveal himself to you. What you want to know about God, he will show you. Who you want to become in this world, he will shape you. That is the cause and effect relationship we've been talking about over these past weeks. I mean, could you imagine if we had a faith where let's just say you were very impatient. And I got up and I said, you know, you can pray to God about being impatient, but he doesn't care. He's just whatever, you know. God cares nothing about you being more patient or more gentle or more kind. If I were to proclaim that type of a God to you each week, I would, I would not even be here doing this. I would find something better to do with my Sundays. But when we know there is a God committed to us in these areas who wants patience and gentleness and humility in our lives more than we do, then what that means is we can confidently approach God knowing that his desire is to make us into the image of Jesus in the areas of our lives where we feel like we can grow. That's the cause and effect. We let the presence of God into our lives by letting his truth into our hearts. And when we've made the decision to pursue God like that, for who he really is, according to who he says he is, not who we want him to be or who others tell us he should be, something changes. And what changes is we really begin to know the God of the scripture. 
and we really begin to understand the importance of this piece of armor. And so here's how we'll wrap up before we move to the communion table. I want to leave you with a, this is a quote I've shared with you before, um, because I actually think it is, the, at least to date, it's the best quote that I have read that explains the centrality of the scripture in our lives. It comes from a book called Total Church. It's written by two gentlemen named Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. These are both British guys. And they are going to use the language of being word-centered, okay, to, to describe what we're talking about today. So when you hear that word, being word-centered, that's what they mean when they're talking about the, the spirit being the word of God, okay, or the spirit using the word of God to help us become like God. And here's how they describe the practical application of the Bible in our lives. It'll be behind me. They say, being word-centered, being committed to Scripture, is much more than just how you teach and disciple people. In other words, it can't just be transactional truths. It means governing church life by God's Word. It means every decision, think about your life, and I'll do the same, every decision, formal or informal, is explored through explicit reference to God's Word. We invite God into the dailies of our lives. We ask and we re-ask what God's Word teaches us about the issues and problems we face. We don't walk in this life thinking, I go it alone. We know we go it with God. And we ask and re-ask how God can speak into these areas. And then, this is perhaps the greatest example in the New Testament as far as the balance that we have been talking about. As James says in his epistle, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. You must also do what the Word says. There is cause and effect in that statement. When we listen to the Word, and the idea behind listening here is that we are hearing it, not just with our heads and our ears, but it's actually beginning to penetrate our hearts. It becomes somewhat of a compulsion to do what the Word says. And to do anything otherwise might illuminate the fact that there is a point of self-deception in our lives, i.e., we proclaim and love, we experience the generosity of Jesus, but really desire not at all to show it to others. Or, I you know, hate to throw the Pharisees under the bus, but they're an easy, they're an easy thing to throw under the bus you know, here they are proclaiming the mercy of God without any. I mean, it's, it's uh, really problematic. You've heard people say, like, oh, the, the Christian faith, the doctrines of grace. I went to a church that didn't have any. That's a problem. Like, you can't preach the doctrines of grace. You can't preach grace and not have it. At some point, there's an inconsistency that God senses, and certainly others will. And so the idea is that as, as powerful as a statement as this is, as true as these things are that we've said, we all have had, and maybe are having a season right now, if today is not your day, there will be some time in the days that follow. None of us escape this. We have times where we give the authority only Jesus should have in our life to other voices. And I use this language of voice a lot in this room because I think it's the best way to describe this. At times, we, we practice a faith where we're told to be shaped by Jesus. But we live in a world where there are tons of options, opportunities, and voices that constantly compete with us. They, they tell us, hey, I'm a better voice than the one your God says he has for you. Maybe that's in the obvious sense, like other religions or, or world philosophies. Or for some of us, the voice that drives who we are is the expectations of the rat race of life. Fifteen years ago, maybe ten years ago, um, what was interesting is there was a, a sort of a, a colloquial statement, you probably have all heard it, keeping up with the Joneses. And the idea was that the rat race of life created this sort of frenzied consumerism in America where people felt like they had to have what their neighbors had. Now what's happened is sociology is teaching us that keeping up with the Joneses is less about material items in the greater American psyche, and it's actually more about time. 
time is actually more valuable than money to most people. And so keeping up with the Joneses today is, how much stuff am I doing? Like, well, my kid's in 78 extracurricular activities. I'm not against extracurricular activities. We have our kids in a few. But what I'm saying is, is if we have extracurricular activities that are so defining our lives, they're so scattering our lives, this is a place where we have to explicitly, through God's word, ask how we are using our time. It's funny watching how it's sort of like our culture. We have the same idols. We just... They wear different hats at times in life. So today it's less about the material accumulation uh, that we, we experience in life, and it's more about how busy we are. That's what is most valuable, because we've created this sort of false... It's, it's a synonym that's really not a synonym. Busyness is equated with mattering, and a lot of times our busyness is actually is robbing us of what matters most in life. And so maybe it's the expectations of the rat race of life, or it's the identity of our vocation. Maybe it's some of our friends or popular authors, blogs, podcasts, uh, YouTube videos. I just self-confess. I watch a lot of them. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying at the end of the day, they can't be the ultimate voice in our lives. Maybe it's the personal opinions and desires of our own hearts. The greatest voice in our lives is actually our own voice, and that's an incredibly tricky one to deal with because it's really hard to disagree with yourself, right? I mean, most of us, we really like ourselves, and we are fully behind what we say and believe, and we can be the least objective people when it comes to being objective about our lives. And so if we are the most dominant voice in our life, what happens is we, we become unteachable. We become the types of people who can't hear anything from other people because we become the God in this complex, and then we begin to subordinate everybody to our truths. And no shortage of things that, that want to speak into us today. But to give them a greater platform than the scripture is a problem for the Christian. It's a very dangerous place to be. And I leave you with where we began. If this truly is the life that God has breathed into us, if these, these truths really matter in this life and the next, if they are the objective truth about what creates fullness in our life, if they are absolutely God's revelation of himself to us, if we really believe those things cause, then we should naturally, I'm not saying easily, but I'm saying there should be some check in our lives that desires to make these the most important words in our lives. And that check is the Holy Spirit. Even in the days when we are unable to do this, this is why we read about the sword of the Spirit. The idea is that God has not only given us his truth, he's also given us a great advocate to remind us of his truth in the seasons of life where we forget it or we are shaped in areas that are very far from it. And so as we move into our time of response in the communion table, this is a time for a few minutes that you can really focus on the voice of Jesus this morning. And I want us to pray that as a church family, we would never lose this value, that we would recognize individually and corporately how important it is to be shaped by the scripture, that we would grow in our love for Jesus, each other, and the work of the church. As we do remember who we truly are as believers, who we should become as believers, what we are as a church now and where we're going has to be defined not just by truth and grace, but by the truth and grace we read about in the Bible. And so as we close, I ask you a simple question. Do you read the Bible? Do you read it with open ears and an open heart? Is Jesus' word the ultimate voice in your life, or is he one of many voices on the palette of voices that shape your life? I'm not saying all other voices are bad, but I'm saying all voices should be sifted and discerned through the main voice of our faith, and that is Christ. And I also want to offer you, like, maybe you have questions about the Bible. Maybe you have questions about how to read the Bible. We'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But if you have, like, great objections to the Bible, I mentioned this last week and we'll do so each week. I'm going to do my best to hit all the big stuff. 
But if there's a question you would really like addressed, let me know that on that card. If you have a question about the Bible that I've yet to address in these past two weeks, I want to try my best to get all of that in these teachings. So if you have questions about the Bible in general, please let me know that, and I'll really work hard to include that in these teachings. But today, as we close, ask yourself, when it comes to the Scripture, what is Jesus saying to you about them, and what are you going to do with them when you leave this place? Pray with me.